just enough with it already. Enough, enough, enough. Stop with it. Stop with it now. Calm down and slowly drowning. Taking bets on who is next to fall. I saw the glass as I fall. So I felt I could ask for more. I was comfortable. It felt a burn on to the floor. I begged to go back to before. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of The End Podcast where we talk about usually good films and some TV stuff and generally some pretty good comics. If you're listening to us on one of your favourite listening locations, we also have a YouTube which is The End Pod One Shots and a Twitter and an Instagram which is The End underscore pod i am one of your regular co-hosts matt and with me today is it'll be no surprise for regular listeners in brussels and ashburn it's tim everybody how are you tim matt i'm awesome um very excited today very happy um i guess we can break the news that i've i've switched jobs i've left my abusive <laughs> up for a for uh greener pastures so i'm, I'm doing great and thank fuck for that <laughs> <laughs> we should have a whole pod i could tell you stories oh god <laughs> yeah we should just do a bad jobs episode i've had yeah, a few but... of those yeah fuck you centrica <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing ah well i've had probably one of the most stressful weeks of my life i had a couple of things that that uh, went wrong uh, i went or anyone with the details, but safe to say, even sometimes a 42-year-old man needs his mother. So I spent most of the week back in Leicester. Oh. <laughs> with in mind, my mum's just getting over a, a hernia operation. And okay. I just turn up in absolute bits, like total meltdown situation. Yeah, my mum's had this major operation. She's supposed to be lying like flat and i get there and she's like do you want some do you want me to get you some soup and like i'm poorly but i was like i was in absolute bits total meltdown head was fried couldn't see a way out of the situations and i was just like i can't cope like one of these things on its own is too much but i mean you know how stressful the one situation was with the retaining wall and then put 150 percent on top of that i was unable to cope so i was like yeah i was soup soup please soup soup she was like you want some soup yeah i want some soup <laughs> toast 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 she was like you want some toast mm, toast yes i'll have some toast please <laughs> and then she says all right but i can't carry it up the stairs you'll have to come down i just stood forlornly by one of the kitchen counters the work tops and just spoon soup into my mouth, dipping in a bit of bread, going, nice soup, soup nice. <laughs> and then I went to bed and, and oh, I had to, uh, yeah, it was it was a nightmare. But I feel better now. A little bit of distance is sometimes all you need to rationalise the situation, isn't it? For yeah. sure. Uh, so anyway, anyway. 
So yeah, Tim's had a good week. I've had a fucking horrible week. <laughs> yeah, and again, Leicester City were winning every single game, and then the Celtics start winning games, and now Leicester can't fucking buy a win. <laughs> okay, let's get on to what we're actually talking about today. Tim and I <laughs> watched The Royal Hotel, which is another feminist banger from Kitty Green, or is it? She is known for The Assistant, which was uh, Me Too in the office. Kind of, I don't know what to call it without... What, what film? It's a film, Tim. That's what it is. And that also starred Julie Garner. We also have Jessica Hemwick. And we had Hugo Weaving. And then I'll give you my brief thoughts on the Marvels after we've talked this one up or down. So, Tim, did you enjoy this film? I enjoyed this immensely. I thought it was very, very menacing. It maintained a level of anxiety throughout the picture and for that reason i really really liked it i I thought the acting was excellent the dolly guy he was truly frightening Uh, one other thing i liked about it is if you have personal experience with alcoholism or alcohol use disorder that adds another layer of anxiety to the whole thing so I, i liked it for that reason i can only agree on one thing that you've just said there i think it was very, very well acted. And I just don't think that any of the technical disciplines did any of the actors in this any favours. I think it was poorly edited. I think it had massive pacing problems. And quite the opposite, I thought it really struggled to hold tension. I don't think it knew the identity of its threat. And I don't think it, especially, I think the ending was almost from a different film, but we'll get to that. I don't think they played on suggested aspects of the characters and of the situation. And I don't think it used, and this was very, very well acted. Let's not fuck about. I mean, we, Julie Garner was plays that twitchy, tense, reactive front foot character, almost a more timid version of what she plays in the Ozarks easily damaged, but very reactive kind of character. Jessica Hemwick played her friend. So basically, let's the, the crux of it is Jessica Hemwick and Julie Garner's characters, they're in Australia. Jessica Hemwick's character runs out of money, so they take a job very quickly. The only thing available is in this outback bar for this mining town where the population is pretty much zero except for the people that work there. And... It's about the nuance of pursuing women and relationships can be misinterpreted or misused. And like you said, there's a tension because not all the advances are welcome. And Mm. in this place, you've got some real shitty blokes. You've got some blokes who are either accepted or rejected. And then you have one that seems to fit into the model of their friendship quite well. So... It proposes a lot with all these characters. Kitty Green is a, is a wild feminist writer. She, like I said, she did The Assistant, which was a big Me Too thing, workplace Me Too thing in a big organisation. For that, she did a documentary called Ukraine is Not a, a Brothel. So there was a through line. If 
I, I don't think this was the purpose of the film. All the characters were proposed from a different level of threat. I don't think it was meant to show the duplicity of women that we don't want to be spoken to, we don't want unwelcome advances unless I find you attractive back. So it's kind of, we don't want to be viewed as in a sexual manner unless we want to be. Do you know what I mean? Like there wasn't the nuance in the writing. of. I also feel that there was a real opportunity to drive a wedge between the two central characters because Jessica Henwick's a bit more free going. She embraces it. She she gets what working in the bar is a little bit better. And Julie Garn is constantly going, I don't like it. I want to leave. Uncomfortable with the free and easy drinking and sexuality of this outback bar. What I would have done if, if this was my film, and heaven forbid that should ever be the case, I would have driven the wedge between the two characters that makes it seem like the same events are being seen through two completely different lenses, but the characters' friendship is never really put under test. They both have their individual take on things, but it never really causes enough friction. This film really sent me the wrong way because there was a couple of really clever editing choices to suppose what kind of film this was. But again, it was kind of a bit mixed. They're in this nightclub. Uh, Jessica Henwick's card gets rejected when she goes to the bar. They exit this nightclub, and then it turns out they're on a party boat, this party yacht. And it was really clever editing. It then goes at a, a massive rate of knots. They're then sat in a, tra a traveller's bureau or whatever it is. Can we have a job? Yes, yes, there's a job. It's very choppy editing. It's almost too quickly. We don't really get to know the characters enough in this initial passages of this film to really worry too much or to have any sympathy or empathy for what they're put into because we don't really know them. One of them's a bit more responsible than the other. There's no initial character setting to any extent. So... That duplicity between the two and the way that I would have driven a wedge through them wasn't really possible because they're not really, they're not archetypes enough. Usually that wouldn't be a good thing, but they were a bit, the two characters were too similar at that point. And then they end up getting a lift to this remote part of the Australian outback in this mining village. And they're chucking their bags in the back of this like Trans Am or whatever it is. And immediately there's this big dog barking when they open it. Now, mm -hmm. that really cleverly sets the scene. You have a familiar situation where danger has been injected into it, surprisingly, unexpectedly. And I thought, wow, if this, if this scene in itself is indicative of what's to come, then we're in for a, a roller coaster. But mm -hmm. it just went on and on and on. And I never really felt they were in too much danger. I didn't feel that they were ever not going to come out of it the other side. Sorry, on the party boat, Julie Garner finds this sort of easygoing, fun-loving Nordic, Scandinavian fella. She ends up having a bit of a snog, and she's quite content with that. So she was happy with his advances in that setting. But when genuinely nice people 
at the bar, like this guy called Ty, right? Or T, whatever his name is. Okay. Yeah. He's rough around the edges, but he seems like nice. He's not a threat to anybody. He's just genuinely, a, he takes a shine to Jessica Henwick's character. But because he's rough around the edges, everybody just laughs at him. At one point, somebody actually holds up a cat. Yeah, hey, Ty, if you want some pussy, mate, there it is, or something like that. <laughs> but I would have used that wedge and the paranoia of one character against this plain day character of Jessica Hemwick that Julie Garner was getting more and more and more and wound up and she was internalising it because Jessica Hemwick's character wasn't necessarily listening to her. And then when they were fearful in the final passages, and there was one guy that was an absolute shitbag. So there's, there's one scene where this one shitbag, he's walking up and he's and he's drunk and he's like, oh, girls, where are you? Come on, let me in sort of thing. And they see the classic trope, the feet under the door, they hide and they stay quiet and then he moves away. I would have used that in one of the final passages of the scene with Julie Garner in the room on her own. And I would have made it so it was the Scandinavian guy. And in her complete paranoia, she ends up killing him. She opens the door and she stabs him or hits him over the head or something like that. Because this is not a long film. It's only about, what, an hour 30, an hour 40? That's what, it's 90. I looked at it and was like, there's 15 minutes left. There's 15 minutes left. We've got nowhere. We've like repeated themes, we've repeated scenes, we've repeated the general crux of the film three or four times over. And we've got the credit, so take five minutes off that. I was like, how are they going to tie this up in 10 minutes? And and if they're going to do that abrupt ending, you need something to really push it home. So I think that misdirection, and then they flee the bar. Now on the ending, Tim, and I know I've said a lot and I've not (laughs) given you a chance to reply, but with the ending, they end up burning the bar down. This is shot very much like an indie film, right? Mm-hmm. Very much like an indie film, except for the opening scene and the final scene. And they end up burning the bar down, and then they're walking away without looking back, like it's the end of a Fast and Furious film. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this just doesn't fit with everything else. I think they needed to have a real tragedy at the end of it, that internalization that Julie Garner could have gone through and the way that she was being ignored and she felt trapped and anxious and oppressed. And that all comes out at the end and she maybe kills the Scandinavian fellow or even maybe she kills Jessica Henwick's character. I just felt it went nowhere quick and it ended nowhere quick, despite it being a very quick film. Um, I, I just felt it was menacing throughout the threat is not ever really particularly identified but i liked that fact because you're seeing the threat the ambient threat through the through the eyes of basically the uh, hannah character i can't i'm not sure what her name is what's what's her name in real life uh, the, julia garner julia yeah. garner and so i liked it because you, you never know just like she never knows what's a threat and what's not and it turns out even the guys that she calls the Scandinavian guy to come pick her up and take her back to Sydney because she's fucking had it. Mm. And that Dolly guy, she's terrified of him. So she wants to get out of there. So the Scandinavian guy comes back. She's got a little thing with this other dude. 
a local that she hangs out with and is like made out with like once or twice. And then Liv has got this not a thing, but kind of thing with the guy Ty. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it turns out that, you know, they're all various levels of shitbag. Like they appear nice, but especially the guy that Hannah's with, he like breaks her door down with Dolly and like tries to abduct or take live somewhere that I think was yeah, designed yeah. And very menaced by it. And then the Scandinavian guy calls her, I think like a sour cunt, right? When he's all wasted. Oh yeah. He like, says, yeah, this is why they all call you the sour cunt. Yeah. 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 So it's like, he's maybe not the best dude. And then the Thai guy, he was the closest to like a genuine friend. But at the end, when he beats up Dolly for like trying to take live, he smashes his car. There's a lot of like car crashes in this sort of weird. Mm. He busts into the door and he's like, that fucking, I told him that you're mine. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So his view of it is he's like a nice guy. Like, what do you call it? A, a wolf in sheep's clothing type of thing. Mm. I thought it worked. And I thought that the very fact that you couldn't identify menace and what's true and what's not helped. I don't know. I liked it because it, it gave you that sense of anxiety and uncertainty that that the main characters have i still think they could have played on it more that how much of it is how much of the situation is created from her actions because there's a couple of english girls as well isn't there that are there that they're taking over from and they seem to embrace it and they're having a wild time now that's not to say that you should have to adopt a persona to fit in anywhere or accept the, the environment that you're in but you are very much in the environment and knowing that Jessica Henwick doesn't have character live. She doesn't have a, as big a problem as what Hannah does. Julia yep. Garner's problem. And I think the, a part of the problem is, is because she is a bit of a sour Well, I think it's because she doesn't drink. Like, everyone else is getting fucked up all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, that's a very good point. And because she mentions at one point that her mother was basically like an alcoholic. And so mm. she doesn't was drink, but not a lot that gives her a sober view of things that maybe Liv doesn't have because Liv spends the entire movie fucked up basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's yeah. waiting at a, every turn. That's how I interpreted that. Not so much that she's innately like some kind of prude necessarily. In the first scene, she makes out with the Scandinavian guy. The role reversal is almost complete. Liv's the one that's like, can we get the fuck out of here? And uh, Hannah's the one making out with this dude on the, yeah, on the yeah, party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't think she's necessarily approved. I took it as exactly that. She felt, the character Hannah felt as though she was happy to be pursued on the boat because of her perception of what that person is, who ended up being a shitbag anyway. But then she was willing to give him a chance because of the environment. But then as soon as she goes to the bar, she's too good for everything. And she immediately gets everybody's backs up because she thinks that she's too good for the people and for the environment where I think Jessica Henwick embraces it a bit more for what it is. Hannah was reasonably anxious about the bar. You yeah. can imagine when everyone's partying. I don't know how old these girls are supposed to be, like mid-20s maybe. Yeah. That's a context. <laughs> but when you get to the bar, you're in the middle of nowhere. I was about to say exactly that, Tim. That yeah. The one thing it does really well is how I talk about the boxed horror. Because mm -hmm. she says at one point to 
Hugo Weaving's character, the actual bar owner. And wow, like mm-hmm. like I said, I can't I can't criticize any of the actors in this. They all do a fucking fantastic job because they're all quite familiar, which is amazing, really, to think you managed to get Hugo Weaving, Jessica Henwick, Julia Garner in a little indie Australian film. Yeah, yeah. I lost the eye for the actor and and just saw the character almost immediately. And Hugo Weaving, I mean, wow, almost unnoticeable hating. Yeah. We, but, okay, great. Yeah. So we talked off there before we started the show that you told me that Hugo Weaving was in the movie. I was like, where? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I kind of want to go back and see if I can recognize him because he doesn't look He's anything unrecognizable. Like yeah. And he plays the, the nasty drunk so well, doesn't he? Again, there's a line early on where he says to, what are you girls doing? And she says, oh, I've got a, a degree and whatnot. And he goes, oh, so you're a clever can, are you? <laughs> yeah. He goes, good, we could do with a couple of clever cans around here. It throws them back because yeah. it's a very very Australian and British thing to use it in a positive way. Like, like I always called Tim a lovely cunt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a decent bloke and quite supportive. But he gets blackout drunk and he binge drinks. He's not continuously pissed, but he gets blackout to the point where there's a lady that comes, is she a cleaner? She basically says to the girls, when she takes him away late in the film in the ambulance, because he gets himself in such a mess, take the money out the till, take all your tips and get the hell out of her as quickly as you possibly can. I think she's the cook. She's That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is his name Bill? I don't even remember what his name is. And throughout the movie, like, she's telling him, pour that drink out. Don't fucking drink that. And he's like, fuck you. And he just, like, drinks it. And so there's there's that obviously long-standing conflict between them that I thought was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I liked it. I can see your points. But I found myself very engaged. It felt like 20 minutes to me, not 90. So to me, it wasn't slow. I mean, it was not much happens. But yeah, I, I think felt that's one of my problems. Yeah. I felt Hannah's anxiety throughout. Oh, yeah. There's no two ways about it because it's fantastically acted. There was a really good film in here somewhere, a top, top notch modern thriller. And I feel like it squandered the opportunity. But it's certainly not a bad film. It's mm-hmm. easily watchable. You feel the anxiety, but felt that there was something missing. Mm hmm. And I don't think it could get its editing sorted out as well. At times it was choppy. At other times it was like long, slow takes. I mean, you can do that, but it's something that has to be intentional. And I feel like it it lost its luster. Maybe that was an editorial choice and maybe it was, maybe this film was a lot longer. I think there's a two hour film here. And I think sure. most of, and I think most of that you put maybe 20 minutes on the beginning and about 10 minutes on the end. Uh, let me ask you a question. So the first time they go out, they want to go swimming and they end up in that, they're kind of sunbathing with the chairs and they're drinking boxed wine. In the background, that sounds like a scream and maybe like a gunshot or something. Oh, and they're yeah. like, oh. Hannah's like, what was that? What was that sound? And Liv's like, um, I'm not sure. I think she was laughing. Because they want to convince themselves that it's not dangerous, but right. it kind of sounds very, very dangerous to me. And then the, the British girl in the beginning, she's the one of the bartenders when they take over for them in the first third of the film. 
And then she gets out of town and comes back and she's with Dolly, who's who I think is the real antagonist of the movie. And you can tell that she's playing it like that actor was playing it, I think, very frightened as well. So you never know what's like going on behind the scenes. And I think from the perspective of Hannah, who's the she's a sober one in the room, like you can see how from her perspective, all the stuff like triangulating would cause her a lot of um, anxiety. But anyway, I liked it. I think it, I definitely think it could be better, but I, I would send somebody to this. Okay. Well, that that's the question, Tim. That is the question. Yeah. And you've just answered it for me. <laughs> <'Cause that's, laughs> oh dear. So as we usually say, you can't seven out of 10 watch something. You either watch it or you don't. I would, I'd still say give it a watch. I think for 90 minutes, you're not going to feel cheated by spending it watching this film. I think, again, standout acting performances. It's not a bad film by any shot. I think my own expectations probably betrayed me a little bit. Mm, yeah, fair. So I will give you my brief thoughts on the Marvels, then, Tim. And Please. feel free to ask any questions. So... It is directed by Mia da Costa of Candyman alumni. It has the return of Brie Larson, Fiona Paris, Iman Vellani, Sam Jax is back, and Zor Ashton, a.k.a. Mrs. Tom Hiddleston, <laughs> as the villain whose name I'm not even bothered about. I would say... There was a point in the MCU where finishing in the bottom five wasn't a big problem because all the films were brilliant. Mm -hmm. This is probably the worst MCU film. Wow. And because Love and Thunder at least had the modus operandi. It was a silly film by intent. It was excruciating to watch, but it executed exactly what Taika Waititi wanted. He made a dog shit, stupid film. He was drunk on his own success, as was Chris Hemsworth at that point. And what they produced was fully by intent. This is a film that is, the more you watch, the more questions you have about why, and if that, then why this? Brie Larson's Oscar is a long time ago now. I'm yet to see her play a part where I don't think she's just dull as dishwater. Siona Paris added nothing to this film. Iman Vellani, she has the enthusiasm of somebody that's pulled out of obscurity and put in this world of superheroes, both in real life and as the character. So she's basically playing herself and her enthusiasm for the role is one of the few saving graces of this film. Sam Jacks has gone, I mean, if it was ever possible to make Secret Invasion worse, this film managed to do it. It took mm. a, a brow-beating, aging, elder statesman of a cinematic universe and all of the concerns and sort of retreats that were established in Secret Invasion apparently don't exist in this. His scroll wife doesn't exist in this. There is a, a planet and a settlement that, that seems pretty extensive of scrolls. 
which then asks the question, well, why did they need to be on Earth? He just magically reappears on Sabre, having been effectively fired in Secret Invasion. I know with the changing release dates and whatnot, it just feels like Secret Invasion should have come a couple of months after this. But he's his charming, charismatic, quippy best. But that character was stripped in Secret Invasion. Zora Ashton plays an accuser. So after Ronan, she plays it completely... Lee Pace is a great actor. He's a brilliant actor. A very much underrated one that hasn't quite had that role. And I don't know if he ever will, because he seems content on doing the indie... He seems content on being an indie darling. Halt and Catch Fire, <laughs> who is brilliant in. I actually think his portrayal of Ronan was pretty good. I know it was a little bit one note. This, however, it is like Malekith, when Christopher Eccleston, when he played Malekith, at least he was menacing. You felt the unbridled commitment to duty that he wanted to restore his nation. I mean, kind of what Zor Ashton does here, but this is a paper thin, it's paper thin and it's been left out in the rain version of the worst of Malekith, of the worst of Ronin. The motivations are completely suspect. So here's the thing. After There's a whole film missing here. There's a whole film where Captain Marvel, after the first film, is in space wiping out the crew. There's a very short passage of her... Basically, that scene in Endgame where she appears and they turn all their, their weapons upwards to try right. and shoot her and she just goes straight through the Leviathan, right? There's a scene of that where she just careers through the higher intelligence or whatever it's called, the Kree, you know, supercomputer, the AI that tells them what their destiny or what their, their value is to the Kree empire. And apparently from destroying a supercomputer... Their sun died, and because the sun died, there was no atmosphere and, and all the water went away. So Zor Ashton's character, the accuser, she's got the other bangle from Miss Marvel, okay? Mm -hmm. From her TV show, and they're all supposed to be a pair. So Zor Ashton's character wants to put them both together to be able to open... You know, the, the space jumps. Now, they're set in three-dimensional space. That They only yeah. exist at certain points. And she is, with the bangles, she's opening jumps that don't exist. So she's creating this instability in time and space. And how she is adopting those, weaponizing them, is the first one she sucks the atmosphere out of the scroll safe hold. You know, because there's a vacuum, so the atmosphere gets sucked through. She then goes to a planet where they communicate in only song and dance, which is okay. just this excruciating, we're doing Bollywood, but we're not doing Bollywood because we have a Pakistani character. Cringeworthy. <laughs> it is horrible. So they suck the water off that planet because it's like 96% water or something. And then they're going to go to Earth to suck the sun out. Now, it's one of those where it's a conversation, like Captain Marvel can, she 
she ends up restarting their son just from the energy she can create when she's going binary. Mm -hmm. So she just flies into the sun and apparently that doesn't destroy it. it, But it reignites it somehow. Uh, uh, The only good point was uh, Kamala Khan's family. They were brilliant as they were in the TV series, but there's this curious series of events where Nick Fury... Well, they basically every time they use their their powers coincidentally, so Photon or Captain Marvel or Miss Marvel, then they change places. So there's this battle, big battle in their home, in the Khan family's home, because a couple of I don't know, I just don't know how it works and how it doesn't work, but a couple of the the Kree get sucked in with it or something. It's like holding Freddy Krueger's hat when you wake up sort of shit, I don't know. And then Nick Fury takes them to the space station for some reason, makes no sense. Like if there was a scene where it says, you take me to my daughter right now, or we need to keep you safe because now they know where you live, we can't leave you there. Nothing, they just appear on the space station. I mean, and the final scene is Monica Rambeau, so photon, whatever she's called. Her light powers apparently can repair the tears in space-time, right? Right. So, so she has to go to the other side to do it. Why? Mm. Why? I was looking forward to you having watched the film, Tim, but because I had a sciencey thing. Now, the science behind it is actually accurate because people have been criticising, like, well, how does this do it? Now, if you can imagine empty space is actually a thing. It's not just a lack of a thing, it's a thing. So let's say you're completely submerged in a swimming pool, you have water around you. Empty space, it's not like a recordable thing. And we're not talking about dark matter, which is about what 70% of the universe. We're not talking about things you can't see or record. Space is a thing. Now, you know, like absolute zero is like minus whatever it is, Kelvin, or zero Kelvin minus whatever Celsius or Fahrenheit, that is something with no energy, absolute zero. But there is also a maximum temperature that anything can go to, and that is called the Planck temperature. Now, the Planck temperature is theorised that if you could get something that hot, it would, in actual fact, tear space-time. And the theory is that it at that point it would bubble and that's how the universes are formed that it bubbles oh. out from that yeah so that's one theory right the multiverse is almost like a an amoeba splitting sort of thing or yeah. like single cell splitting from this maximum well, it's not theoretical but i mean we will ever be able to create it so that part of it is was surprisingly accurate whether or not they actually knew that that's what they were doing or not i don't know (laughs) and then again we have this horrible post-credit scene where and this was spoiled i think marvel what are they doing they're giving away everything in the trailers now and i think they're sneakily leaking the post-credits to this to try and get people to go and i i on principle didn't want to go opening weekend i would have gone second weekend because it's already failed at that point. But yeah. the post credit scene's been leaked because it has the 
Singer, Singer, Brian Singer, right? So it has Kelsey Grammer as Beast because she get, like I said, Monica Rambeau gets sucked through. She seals the, um, the fourth dimensional tear and then she wakes up in hospital. Her mother is her same age, but it's that universe's mother. It's kind of like a multiverse of madness where Maria Rambeau, I think her name is, she becomes Captain Marvel. But she's called Binary on this, which I think was a Kelly Thompson character from her run. Mm. She created this binary character. And then Kelsey Grammer, Ms. Beast appears and says, oh, how's the stranger? Because she thinks that's her mum. She's like, oh, I think she's a little bit confused. But I'm sick and tired. Like Pip the Trot with Harry Styles. Like the bloke from Ted Lasso. The guy from Ted Lasso turning up as Hercules. Now we have this third, and these are only the ones I can remember, this horrible CGI that looks like a fucking cartoon. Like, would, it have, would it have hurt to just have Kelsey Grammer in makeup for six hours on one day to stand there? And you know the way the cheekbones are a lot higher and the eyes are a little bit smaller and the noses are dead small. And then they've got this big grin. I mean, it looked... A, it looked like the animated series Beast, except it's been like in the Chippendale thing where they have like a CGI sort of facelift. Just enough with it already. Enough, enough, enough. We still haven't had a follow-up from Shang-Chi where there's yeah. a message going somewhere. Stop with it. Stop with it now. This film should have been out two, three years ago and it shouldn't have been this film. It should have been Captain Marvel going and taking on the Kree in this intergalactic fucking space opera. Maybe have some of the Guardians appear. Maybe have Harry Styles appear in that as Thanos' brother. I just don't understand. It just doesn't seem like anybody knows what's going on from one film to the next. And these fucking breadcrumbs aren't breadcrumbs. They're just... It's... it's the, the chunks that are just being thrown to the fucking ducks. It's so frustrating, Tim. And I know you're not supposed to say this. I know you're not supposed to say this, but it fucking frustrates me. Why do we have, why is it acceptable in super, with this is specifically in superheroes. Let me say with no lack of certainty, exclu I'm exclusively talking about superheroes now. Why is it now acceptable to have unattractive, overweight actors playing superheroes? <laughs> Fucking, it, because it, you're getting paid so much money, the men manage it. The men manage it. Fucking Paul Rudd had a six-pack in the, in the Ant-Man film, and he did a shirtless scene. And I thought, well, maybe, I'm not, no, fuck it, Tiona Paris. I thought, well, maybe she's just a thick lady. Maybe she is. Uh -huh. And I go on the press, I go on the fucking press interviews, and she and she sits down and she's got a belly. You're playing <laughs> a fucking superhero. Like honestly. And I get it. And and like Villani as well, like bless her. Bless her. But but G on G. Willow Wilson's characterization of Kamala Khan. She's this lanky, tall, awkward looking girl. Not like a, a sort of cute, bouncy girl. Mm -hmm. And I know there's always fluctuations from the source material to the comics. But uh, it's incredibly frustrating. 
incredibly. Like you've got a role, like everyone, everyone's dreaming of, maybe not so much now, but they're dreaming of an MCU role, but you can't do a training camp for three months. Lazy. Yeah. Infuriates me, Tim, infuriates me. Cause you wouldn't, I mean, it's like a competition between the male actors. Like when, oh goodness me, who played Cable in Thanos? Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. When he turned up to set, Dave Batista went, oh, he's throwing the gauntlet down for Infinity War. And he said he knew he had to get bigger for Endgame. Like it's oh. this comp like healthy competition. Plus, it's just that's the job, right? It's the mm -hmm. job. You're a superhero. You can't say it, but I've said it. And it's how I feel. And you're not going to stop me feeling that by me not saying it. And maybe that makes me a bad person. But nobody wants to see this fucking film. So it's not just me thinking that this, this hasn't been done in the right way. And to be fair, Brie Larson, I don't like the lady. I don't like her because of the press interviews that she did with all the other Avengers. She looked petty. She looked uninterested, argumentative when she had that outburst saying, well, this film isn't for middle-aged white men. I'm like, well, it is, mate, because we're 70% of the fucking audience. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you that much. And that's reflective of how poorly this film's done. Really is. Because, and the stats on any social media I've ever had for a podcast or anything else, it's mostly men between the age of 35 and 55. And that's about 70% of the audience. Straight men as well. And that's what people have ticked the boxes to tell me. Anyway, point being, Brie Larson, at least, at least she takes the role serious enough. Like, she was in killer shape. She looked like a superhero. There's no two ways about it. But the acting in this throughout was so flat. The only people that did it any justice was the Khan family, who were charming, gregarious, cheeky. It was mm -hmm. great. Yeah, they were great. They were great to watch. I could watch them. And it's the same thing with the TV programme in the early episodes of that, focusing on their family. Because I've said it before, didn't I, on, on one of our recent episodes, how warm and welcoming subcontinental families can are. Mm -hmm. And that was a perfect depiction of it. Like, really, really good. And then it gets into the silly, there's ghosts and spirits and another set of gods that we have to bring into it. And that's another thing now. How many gods do we need in the MCU? How many? We've got the Norse, well, we have the, uh, is it Norse gods with Thor and all that? And now we have yeah. the Greek, then we have the Greek gods. Zeus, yeah. was it Zeus? And then we saw Hercules. And then we have the Egyptian gods. And now we have the, whatever it is from Miss Marvel. How does that all relate? And how long ago was Eternals? We had, we had, we had a massive, Celestial appear in space. There's one sticking out from the ground, and we're five, six yeah. years, and nobody's even fucking mentioned it, Tim. I just yeah. can't. I knew this film wasn't going to be good, but, and I didn't go in with it with the expectations of that because I feel uh, the journey we've been through with the MCU, I want it to be good again. And when I went into this, despite of, I didn't walk out going happy, Larson. I just felt, oh, no, Brie Larson. 
Oh no. Oh dear. <laughs> and now she's saying she doesn't even want to do it anymore because of the beauty she's got. Can you fucking mouth shut that? Have you tried that? <laughs> do you have any questions for me, Tim, or any general comments on what I've said? Um, I do have a question. It's more of an MCU question, but it is related to this movie. So to say this, to say Marvels is bad only gives us limited information because you could have a bad movie like in context take take a sports team for example like imagine you're like one in ten on the season oh, that's but that team could nonetheless either be on the rise or on the decline right like you can see uh, one in ten teams could still have promise and you can see it rising action as opposed to like just getting worse it sounds like you're saying this portends very poorly because it's a bad movie and the franchise is on a decline it was is that fair it felt like they'd given up they didn't push any pseudo liberal feminist identity politics nothing like that so it feels like they retracted but then they didn't fill it in with anything else there were so mm. many gaps in this film there were so many here's the thing right when they established that Brie Larson's Captain Marvel effectively kills the Kree's home planet because she destroys the higher intelligence, whatever the fuck it's called, this big AI computer, right? So she's a little bit squirmish about going from place to place because she doesn't want it revealed that she's, I think they call her the Annihilator or something like that. That's the name that the Krees have for her. Now, there's plenty of opportunities for that to break Kamala Khan's idea of what Captain Marvel is. That she sees that she's caused all this trouble, right? And there's this one thing where they're rescuing people off the scroll sort of refugee thing. But it's a pretty nice, it's a nice little planet. They've done well, it's nice. Like, I don't know why they wouldn't just have moved all the, all the scroll there, like I said previously. Kamala Khan wants to get everybody into the ship, but Brie Larson has to say to a Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, nonetheless, has to say to her, we need to save the ones that we can. Mm -hmm. And then they leave them as all these people are still running to the ship. And that could have put a seed of doubt in Kamala Khan's mind. And then when she finds out that she's responsible for the, all this destruction, in actual fact, it's what Carol Danvers has done that's motivated Saul Ashton's character. That There could be that doubt whereby... Kamala Khan realizes she has to be her own hero at that point. And the tough decisions are a part of it. It's not all about being the biggest fan and knowing everything that now she has the responsibility. And it didn't do any of that. It didn't do any of it. Or maybe, or maybe even Kamala Khan using her light powers was holding up something till the last minute. And as they flew away in this space vessel, she sees when her light breaks and it collapses on them. And then she has to bear the burden. And then maybe she understands that you can't save everybody. There's always going to be some sacrifice. But there was no nuance to it. It was like they gave up on Carol Danvers can do everything a man can do, but better. And then they muted that because of the reaction. But then they didn't put any, any further substance in there. And... 
I mean, it asks questions, doesn't it? Because you you have uh, Mia da Costa in there, a very limited, and people say, yeah, well, James Gunn and the 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 Russo brothers didn't have right, but those guys loved. They were comic book fans before they were filmmakers. That's the difference, and they knew the source material. It's not like bringing in somebody that's had one IP film that did quite well. Uh, who may or may not have read a comic, that is now the exception, it's not the rule. And when you have people like this, I think the first time was in the original Captain Marvel film, I can't remember what the, the couple were called that were co-directors, but that was the first time we saw where they stripped control. They didn't bring somebody in to do what they do well, they brought somebody in to henpeck them into doing the MCU way. It, it just felt like they'd, they'd given up. We need to do this film. Let's just get it out. But um, sad. Like I said, at the end of it, I was just like, oh, no. Maybe this is... What's the opposite of an epoch? Nadir. A Nadir. Maybe. Hopefully, this is the Nadir, Tim. I no longer get excited for these. I, I can't believe I'm... I, I, if you asked me five years ago, like... It's it's you know, I live for the MCU. Now I don't even look forward to it. I don't know. Oh. Um when you when you let everybody know Tim, what's it called? Full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't even gonna cover this film, but we've had a very busy couple of weeks, haven't we, between us? Yeah. And we weren't prepared for the stuff that we were gonna read. We were gonna do the Royal Hotel in brief and we were gonna do it as a bonus sort of YouTube thing, but we had no inclination to do this film, but it was just an easy one to, it was just an easy one. And to think that there is a world where we weren't going to cover an MCU film. I know. So what should we do now, Tim? You got time to tell us what you've been up to reading? Have you been reading anything? Have you been watching anything? I have. I have been reading... The second Batman omnibus, the Grant Morrison one. Have you started okay. that yet? Probably. No, I'll do it. I'll do it in a couple of days. I think I'll do it in two or three days next week. Yeah. So I, I won't say anything about that. But um, so I've been reading that and just trying to catch up with some like random like floppies that I have that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, nothing sustained other than the Grant Morrison. How about you? I've been watching a lot of uh, television. Okay. I watched Gen V, the boy spin-off. Oh, how was that? Brilliant. It's really, really good. A perfect accompaniment to the main series. I was worried that it might be a, a spin-off for the sake of spin-off. This feels original. It feels like it has a vitality. It has all the elements that made the boys good, but in a completely different scenario, you buy into it straight away. There's great characters, there's strong characters. It doesn't lean on cameos. The overarching story is intelligently entwined. And there are so many characters that step on the side of being protagonist and antagonist. And the dexterity of characters provides for a, an episode to episode a, a lot of fun and you really really want to you really really want the next episode as soon as possible i re-watched the first 
season of Invincible to bring myself up to speed before the second season came out. I forgot how good it was. In my mind, it's stuck there on, that's a good series, right? But then when I think about it, I'm not passionate about it. It's so good. It's what Robert Kirkman does really well, what he did with Outcast, what he did with The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. It's like he's had a chance to do a second or third pass on how he would tweak his comics if he ever came back to it. The way he reorders stuff to keep people interested, but doesn't go too far astray that it feels alien to the original comics. There's something there for people that have read everything. There's something there for people that have read something. There's something there for people that have read nothing. And again, it has that that limber storytelling where it doesn't set archetypes, it undermines archetypes, and then it brings them back. And there's a real flow and tension and real human side doesn't skirt over them as people. The, the superhero isn't at the expense of them as people. But the action sequences, my goodness, the choreography is outstanding. It really is how you do an animated adaptation. And I forgot how big the voice cast is. It's outrageous. Outrageous. Like top 20 are all A or B list actors. Amazing. And you don't ever, even when you know, like you might go back onto IMDb to have a look. And then you read it and you're like, oh shit, yeah. You go back, you don't know. You don't know. Because they so sublimely portray each of the characters. It's so, it's a tragic story as well. It's really, really well done. So there was that. I also watched Loki week to week. And in stark contrast to the Marvels, this made me feel that MCU delight again. It is just brilliant. The emotion that Tom Hiddleston puts into this character the journey that it goes on from the first episode to the last, the supporting cast all add to the, the colour and the vibrance of this story. And it also does something I never thought I'd say again. By the end of Loki season two, by the very end of it, and by the way, this is the first Marvel series, the MCU proper, as the rest have been sort of shuttered. It's the first one to stick a landing wasn't just a big CGI fight, that it wasn't similar powers, let's fight each other. It didn't have that cringeworthy Anthony Mackie speech looking at the camera. You need to do better, Senator. I'll keep an eye on it. Genuinely an emotional ending. Oh, wow. And, and, it managed to make Quantumania look better with one line of dialogue. Okay. It explains it. It is exemplary. Exemplary. And it sets up expectations. They find a character and you're thinking, the way that it plays with the way that sort of time traveling or that sort of thing does. It does everything. It does a Groundhog Day. It does a Back to the Future. It does a bootstrap paradox, like a Roborick grandfather paradox. And it plays on all of them. It doesn't look at the camera. It allows you to see it. And then you're just accepting of it. It's not contrary to what was set up in Endgame either. It very concisely says, this is the reason why, and let's just go with it. And there's so many twists and turns. It feels like so much more than, I think, the six episodes. 
And it's quite strange that I, Invincible, Gen V and Loki, I can't remember the last time I had one series that I was eager to watch the day it came out. So to have three running concurrently, oh, <laughs> I've been having a whale of a time with streaming services. Rick and Morty's back as well. Been watching a few of those. I've sort of lost my gusto for that a little bit. I think it, what made it great, it's gone more to a sort of, it's become a little bit more silly, I think. It's it's more fiction than science currently, but it's still enjoyable. I, I, episode to episode, still enjoying it, but I don't think it has quite the same gumption of the first few series. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. Oh, and a comic that I've read, the good asian oh yeah 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 i remember you were reading that i think look it's fine i don't think it deserves quite the accolades the attention to detail for asian americans brilliant informative i feel like i know more about that experience it leans on that quite heavily which isn't a problem because it creates the world the story's been told a hundred times more. And when you've read quite a bit of Brubaker and the twists and turns and the, the espionage and the machinations of a Brubaker story, this pales into insignificance. It's a very linear, noir, detective story. And I don't think it... I've not read the second half yet, only the first half, but I think the story was lacking, but the world felt, felt visceral and uh, informed. Um, yeah, not at, the, not at the cost of it, but I feel like if there was as much attention played to the basic plot, then I would have been a little bit warmer on it. But yeah, like a good six, seven out of 10, something like that, a 6.5, yeah. Um, Invincible, does that, does the show track the comic or is it deviate? It's like with Walking Dead. If you can imagine a stream, it's not going from start to finish, it'll meander left to right. Right, right. When's the second season come out? Yeah, it started two episodes in. Oh, okay. I gotta watch that. I've been meaning to do that forever. That's a good that's a good suggestion. And also there's a special for Atom Eve as well. They did like a one shot in between series. I think it's episode two oh two or something like that, or two point zero two or something. And I was a bit wary of watching it because I thought, oh, this might be a bit shit. It's really good. Really good. Yeah. It's just a thoroughly well made series. Straightforward. Sounds good. Excellent. Let's leave it there then, Tim. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, theory, theory. Well, I was a bit of a grumpy Gus this episode, wasn't I, until I got to the end. Maybe we should have talked about the things that I actually liked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, theory, theory, theory. Yeah. Tim, let's watch these two films that I thought were shit, but then at the end, I'll spend about 15 minutes speaking glowingly about things I actually liked. <laughs> well, at least you liked Royal. Well, I didn't dislike it, did I? I just saw a couple of issues that, um, that uh, yeah. So let's say goodbye to the people then, Tim. After you. Goodbye, people. Ashburn, Brussels, hang in there. We're going to try to upload every week. We're going to try to record. We have, we have actually a lot planned over the next, like, three months, I think. Yeah, we have a lot. And with the... I know the scriptwriter's strike is over now. However, I don't think... Well, Neon and A24 have a free pass. So hopefully they'll spring up with something. 
and every now and again that we can look at. They've still got a pretty full slate. But yeah, the major studios and especially the Tempole stuff we talk about, that's probably <laughs> going to be like May, June next year. But we have a bunch of cool comics that we're going to be talking about. We've scheduled Neil Gaiman month in January, and then we're going to go through a few classics in February. And I think Joe's going to join us for that. Tara's going to join us for the Neil Gaiman month. The ones we have currently slated for February are Gotham Central, Dance Lots, Silver Surfer, and Brian Michael Bendis's Alias. Uh, Yeah. So that only leaves me to say goodbye. Your regular co-host, Matt. Thank you very much for listening. And again, just to remind everybody, hit subscribe, please, everybody. Or go to YouTube and, and follow us on there where we chop up the episodes. Just a reminder, that's the end pod. One shots on YouTube, on Instagram and Twitter. It's the end underscore pod. And if you found one of those chopped up bits of content, we are the end on all your favorite listening locations. But you'll need to search Spank Media the end so that only leaves me one more thing to say we have been and this is (laughs) the end good to know i don't have to watch marvels uh yeah it's you will though won't you yes i will